Well, we're in a series right now. We're looking at emotions, kind of the emotional part of our lives. And I want you to consider with me uh, your own patterns in this. So I want you to think about it as having a tell. And when I mean a tell, I don't mean a mound that we dig up and see what's underneath. I mean a tell like they talk about in poker when you're playing and people can tell what you really have or don't have. We all have these little cues, don't we, that are telling about how we're doing emotionally. So I was thinking about this for me, that I have certain things that happen that I can tell it's welling up. Something's bubbling up inside of me. I can't always control it, but I know it's there. And so I do certain things. For example, over my life, I'm, I'm one of those people, I hate it when people are disrespectful or try to power up. And so this, I feel the emotion surge in me when that happens. And one of my tells is I move out of emotional mode into a very kind of, I say things faster and stronger and I disconnect. And by the way, that's not a good tell. I was just telling you about a tell. So, but I know that's true. I know that happens for me. Uh, take it, for example, when motion comes up in, in something like sadness or you're moved where you cry. And, and I would tell you, most of my life, I've, I've not been one to do that easily. The older I get, the easier it gets. I, I don't know why it is, but so, so it'll happen for me. I can watch a movie, and almost at any point in time in the movie, something will happen that moves me to tears. And by the way, I've mentioned this before, but my family seems to enjoy watching me rather than the movie. So apparently they know it too. But what I do with that, and it's wonderful as you get older and you need glasses, is they become a wonderful excuse for the reason you need to put your hand near your eyes. Have you ever done this? Like, oh man, something's in my eye. Oh, no, I'm not crying. Are you kidding me? It's just hurting right now in my face for some reason. You have tells like that? You know where you go, oh, emotions kind of take me. Then there's this other side where do you have it when you're really pumped, something great happens and there's joy and you just can't contain yourself. Like for me, it always takes me back. When that happens in my life, I am Rodney Dangerfield on a golf course and I say something like, so let's dance and journey place. Oh. Tell me that's not full of joy right there. I don't care if you're born in 2005, that is awesome. You just feel it, don't you? I mean, we have ways we express our emotions appropriately or inappropriately, we're all subject to them. We titled this series, Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Emotional. We did it because we know as Christians, we have this idea we're supposed to behave in a very appropriate and fitting manner like Dr. Jekyll, we're to be Christians. We're nice, we're kind, we're good. But we know that when emotions hit us, we often turn into something we didn't expect. And we go, we actually believe that God intends to address our emotional lives in how we live, not simply set them aside and go, it's spiritual, the emotional something different. We started the series last week and we made this simple statement about emotions. We said this, that growing up emotionally is part of growing together in Christ. Now, in case you don't get what we mean by this idea of growing together in Christ, we say as our mission as a church that we're to be radically loving and growing together in Christ. Now, when we describe radical love, what we mean is we are first recipients of radical love, that Jesus, God in the flesh, came to live, to die, and to rise again. He meets us and dies for us in the most ugly and difficult and broken parts of us. That's radical love. He doesn't say, when you get better, I'll die. He says, in the midst of your brokenness, I die. In the midst of your shame, I die. In the midst of your mess, I die for you. 
we'd receive radical love. And the more we understand it, the more we then are called to give it. And then alongside of that, we say we're to grow together in Christ. In other words, grow up in Christ, become mature people. And all we simply are saying in this series is growing up emotionally is, be it a neglected, it's part of growing together in Christ. So that's where we started last week. Now where we want to go this week is, why are we emotional and what does it mean to deal with our own emotions? And to do that, to begin, we have to understand what the source of our emotions are. So we begin with the creation story, with how it all began. In the scriptures, in Genesis, it says this, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he made us male and female, he created them. In other words, we are made in the very image, in the kindness of who God is. So that would imply, if you are emotional, guess where it came from? Go ahead, you can guess where it came from if you want. God. It means that God actually gave us emotions. He made us as emotional beings as well as physical, as well as spiritual. It's part of how he made us. Now that doesn't mean that every emotion we handle well or it's all sourced well. We have sinfulness, but it means it's still a part of who we are. So where I want to start today is we look kind of at one of the two sides. Today, think of it as looking at your own emotions. And next week, we're going to look at how we deal with the emotions of others. And these are all biblical principles, but I do want to explain to you, we have understanding of this, even probably in your marketplace jobs, whether you work in education or in some kind of business or in some kind of entertainment industry or in the political place or alongside of hospitals or in nonprofits like we do, whatever the era is or the area you work in, it's been interesting to discover there is a huge correlation between emotional intelligence and success, meaning that in some ways, emotional intelligence, how we engage emotionally is more predictive of how we do in life than even intelligence, circumstance, all sorts of other factors. Now I tell you that <coughs> because there are two basic things you have to understand with emotional intelligence. The first is your own emotions. Do I know what they are? Do I know how to deal with them? The second is others' emotions. Do I have sympathy and understanding and empathy and do I know how to respond to them? So all we're doing is we're biblically looking at this. Because by the way, God is both emotional and he also is incredibly understanding of ours. So today we're gonna to look at the emotions of God and what that means for us specifically. So with that in mind, I'm gonna do a little bit of an overview and then we'll drill into it more specifically. We're gonna look overall at some attributes of God, times that he displays emotion. We'll then look at the life of Jesus and just some kind of ups and downs, kind of from the good to the bad and how we perceive it. And then we're gonna to go to a very particular situation that is very heavy, Jesus is in, and see what it might teach us about how we engage our emotions. So beginning with God the Father and beginning with God overall, let me just start with the creation story. In the creation story, it tells us that God makes things. And every day, the first six days, he makes things. And by the way, they're always binary. It's always twos. It's things like the heavens and the earth, the sun and the moon, the land and the sea, fish and animals, and then ultimately his beautiful one, man and woman, which both together are made in his image. Just kind of a beautiful picture. Every time he makes something, it says this phrase, and it was good. Now we read good and we think of it as kind of a sterile word. It's good. It's not what it means. When it says it's good, it's a picture of delight, of awe, and of wonder. And I want you just to picture it. Can you imagine that you speak something like the mountains and they come into being. Do you think that's just, oh, it's good? Or do you think you look at a mountain and go, oh, that 
is good. I love it when, when Adam sees Eve and it's like, she is good. She is how you doing good. You see, God has delight in his creation. And if we miss the fact and we just kind of look at it evidentiary, like, oh, well, God did this. No, God did this. God took delight in what he made. Don't we take delight when we look at creation? Man, we connect with the emotions and the passion of God. That's the picture I want you to have. Now we get to Genesis 6 and it gets pretty bad. God lives with regret. It tells us he sees all the wickedness of humanity, all sorts of miserable, destructive things are going on. And it says God regretted creating humanity, creating what he did. Now I want to stop here because this gets at, a, I think, an important distinction beyond theology. We tend to, and we have different camps of our views of how we see God understanding, pre-understanding. We call it foreknowledge, predestination. This idea that God knows all. And we have these two polarities. One of them is we do a thing called double predestination in some schools of thought where you not only believe God pre-plans everything, he predecides all of it. So if you break your arm tomorrow, it's like, oh, God did that. So glad you did that. God's in charge of it all kind of dispassionately. Like it doesn't matter. He just does it. Then we have this other side that's called open theism, where it's almost like there are some things God understands, but a lot of it he doesn't know, and he's kind of experiencing it alongside of us, unbeknownst to him. And I'm not trying to go into either of those places. I want us to consider kind of a, a middle ground that I think will help you maybe understand this. God knows what's going to happen overall, and he still feels in other words, it's not like it would surprise God when the wickedness came on the earth. But just because it came on the earth doesn't mean that God doesn't feel regret. And that's profound to me. You know, later on, and it says this a few other times, Saul becomes king. At the push of Israel, not at the push of God, they want to have a king when God was intended to be their king. And it's heartbreaking. And Saul kind of runs down a bad road and messes up a lot. And it says, God regretted making Saul king. And what I think that tells us is even in God's knowing and understanding, he still feels regret. That should be so comforting to you. Think of how much time we feel regret and we want to go back and change it. God doesn't have that, but in the midst of even the heartache, he still feels regret. We're made in his image. It shouldn't surprise you. What do we do as Christians? I shouldn't feel regret because God's working it all out. It's all good. No, God still feels it. I find that incredibly hopeful. We continue in other attributes. Do you know that God feels joy? I love this unique kind of joy. In Nehemiah 8, specifically, this is a time when Israel has really lost touch with God. They've wandered away. They've forgotten. They've kind of not even been reading any scripture or scrolls. And in this particular setting, they open up the scroll and begin to hear again God's word to them. And it says they begin to lament and grieve and ache. They're kind of looking back now at, I can't believe we missed this. And God responds exactly the opposite way. No, 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 don't regret. He says, the joy of me is your strength. It's this phrase we use around the church. The joy of the Lord is our strength. And what he's saying is, when you return to me, do you know the unbridled joy I get? Do you know how pumped I am? I am any way you want it pumped. I'm journey blasting away pumped. I'm fill in the blank for whatever works for you, but he is overjoyed as we re-engage with him. By the way, what's one of the central attributes and desires of our mission? To reach people that are wandering and far from God. Do you think he longs for us to find the joy he does when someone discovers him 
and begins to walk in their identity and their lovedness and their sonship or daughtership and who he made them to be? You bet he does. And what a beautiful thing that we see God's emotion of joy in the midst of people returning to him. Here's another example. God experiences grief. His heart aches over our rebellion. Psalm 78, which when people talk to me about God being really judgmental and harsh in the Old Testament and then loving in the New, Psalm 78's a great one to challenge you on because it goes through a lot of God's frustration at Israel's rebellion and even times the judgment come, but it always comes back to his broken heart over it. Did you know that God is brokenhearted for us and with us? Do you know in the midst of things you regret and feel brokenness over, God actually grieves, that he aches, that it tears him up to see our rebellion and our move against him. We tend to think of it, he's just mad at us pointing a finger. But Psalm 78 says, no, 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 he grieves. And tell me how many times in the church do we act like we shouldn't grieve even when there's just loss? We'll get back to that in a few weeks, but think about, we always have great statements. I know you're sad, but God works everything together for good. That, that is true. But it's not like someone says that and you go, that is funny, my emotion left. It's just gone now, I don't feel sad anymore. No, sit in it. Yes, that truth will become apparent over time, but let yourself grieve. That's what God does. You see more of the gamut of his emotions. We continue. Did you know God is jealous? Exodus 20 tells us that God is to be the only God. It's one of the 10 commandments. You're to have no others, that he is a jealous God. And I wanna be really clear. This is not jealousy in the sense of brokenness, like God is insecure. Like he's sitting back going, I made you and you don't like me. I'm so jealous. This is that God made us for fidelity. And if indeed he's the creator that we believe him to be, he made us all to respond to him and the way we respond is by worshiping and following. So his jealousy is that it's because it's something destructive to us and he can't stand to take second place because he's not made that way. And by the way, it's a call to why fidelity matters in our own relationships. You wanna know why it matters? Because we're made in his image. He made us for fidelity. He gives us relationship to be faithful into. Same picture. We continue. I just wanted to give you a cross section. This is examples, they're not exhaustive. I'm not hitting every emotion of God. This is, a, I love this one in Isaiah 42, he cries out. It's, a, it's an image of him panting, gasping, crying out. It is compared to a mother in labor. And in essence, he's comparing it to when Messiah comes, there will be all this heartache and pain. And in the midst of it, there will be these beautiful things that come because God is crying out for us. Do you know that when Jesus rose from the dead and he went back to be with the Father, it says that he intercedes for us sitting at the right hand. It doesn't mean Jesus has a nice little list. And he goes, hey, Dad, um, yeah, this and this and this and this. It means Jesus is crying out to the Father. He is sighing and crying and longing to see all of us brought with hope and change in life. Man, isn't that awesome to know that God cries out and when we participate in that, we share his heart. These are, anger and compassion doesn't mean they always go together. I use this example because it speaks to something else. Isaiah 54 shows us God feeling both at the same time. It, it's a picture of Israel's rebellion and all the problems they have, and now God's angry with it. But then in the midst of his anger and even turning, it says that he comes back with compassion. 
And so that even when there's anger and judgment, God brings compassion. And by the way, compassion wins out over anger. But it tells us a couple of things. One is that God lives with ambivalence. Did you know that God can feel both angry and compassionate? Have you ever been ambivalent in your life? Do you ever feel guilty? I'm a Christian, I shouldn't be ambivalent. It's not true. God himself lives in the tension of his anger and his compassion. And beautifully, his compassion overruns his anger. But it's a picture for us that we live in all of this. I think as Christians, we think I'm not supposed to feel this way. I better get rid of this instead of it's part of the human condition. And it's part of God's very nature to walk in all of this. It's a beautiful picture to me of who he is. And then we'll finish just with this last one as it relates to the Godhead overall. His love is an aspect of his emotion, his unfailing kindness and love. In Jeremiah 31, it speaks of God's love in the sending of Messiah, that in the past, Israel only knew him through writing down how they're to live on tablets, but one day will come when he brings the Messiah out of love to live and die and rise and then give us this ability to have in our own hearts his very understanding and life, his spirit, his presence. That is a compassionate unfailing kindness. I, I thought, I won't want us to miss that these emotions are rooted in God's character. Made in his image, we also have emotions. Because often we see them as a side product or a byproduct of sin rather than a product of our image bearing. And I think it's really important we understand emotions themselves are rooted in God's nature and given to us as part of our existence. Now how we handle them, the source of them can be both sinful and redemptive. It's not an easy picture. I want to go on to look at Jesus specifically, but before I, do, before I do, I want to pause a second because I want to speak to this more kind of in, in a pastoral way for all of us. We have varying degrees of how much we both understand our own emotions and how much we're able to even manage what we see or don't see. And, and I'll tell it to you this way because I've met with a lot of people over the years and I've dealt with my own and continue to my own life. Some people, some of us can't even identify how we feel. And so then communicating when there's an emotional upheaval or an emotional surge becomes difficult because we tend to go to things like blame or circumstance or other attributes that avoid emotion when it's an emotion we first have to identify. Now I tell you that because for some of us here and probably for all of us to some degree, we all have to work at identifying emotions. And so I wanna go back to this book on emotional intelligence and just give you some categories. And I'll even encourage you if, you, don't, if you want to, take a picture of the screen as it's up here because this just gives you categories. These are eight kind of larger buckets of emotions. And then it gives you a bunch of other words to consider what they might mean. What I find is if we don't have a word for it, we don't know what to call it. Does that make sense? So, so I'm just gonna walk through them. For example, there's anger. And all of us can, do experience this, but it comes out in different ways. Maybe it's fury or hostility or irritability or annoyance. We all have sadness. Maybe it plays out in grief or self-pity or despair or dejection or loneliness. Imagine that you're feeling something and you go, I need to pull this out and consider which of these feelings am I even having? Because identification is the first step. Then for some of us, we live in fear. Maybe it's anxiety or edginess or nervousness or fright or terror or apprehension or a combination. Or we live in enjoyment where there's joy or relief or contentment or delight or thrill or euphoria or ecstasy. It should just say journey on there, but I didn't feel like I could put that one on. Some of us, we, when we experience love, it's acceptance or trust or devotion or adoration. We have times of surprise. It's shock or amazement or wonder. 
We have times of disgust where it's contempt or scorn or aversion or distaste or revulsion or shame where we feel guilt or remorse or humiliation or embarrassment or chagrin. I just want us to start by having some kind of vocabulary so it's not simply, oh, you should identify your emotions because for some of us, we really need to start with, I don't even know what to call this. And learning the names of them can be helpful. So I didn't want to miss that. Let me jump back into the scriptures and we know that Jesus then becomes God in the flesh. So to see Jesus' life is to see a life of someone fully human and fully God engaged in the complexities of it. So I'm just gonna show you kind of two different poles of Jesus' emotions. There are are a lot more to see. I'm just showing you two. And then we're gonna dive into a very deep, deeply painful experience of Jesus that I think offers us a window into how we might engage in our emotions and mature in them. So let me start with the difficult side. This is in Mark chapter three. Jesus is in a synagogue. Uh, He's teaching that day and he sees a man come in with a shriveled hand. And he knows that the religious leaders have a legalistic view of the rules. They think on Sabbath you can't do anything. And there's this principle that overrides not working on the Sabbath, which is that life matters more than the rules. So he asks a question, is it good to heal on the Sabbath or to basically let things go? And they won't answer him. And this is his reaction. He looked around at them in anger. How many times do we picture Jesus as this sweet little passive God that looks all nice and he's just, it's like you could have a little campfire and he's just gonna talk peace and love and everything. He's, he's pissed. He's not happy. You do understand this, right? He's angry. By the way, if you're wondering what anger means in the Greek, it's angry. It's not nuanced. He's torqued. So what does he do? He's deeply distressed. You hear the emotion. He's angry, he's distressed at their stubborn hearts. And he said to the man, I love this, stretch out your hand. And whoosh. Now I wish all of our anger could end this way. It is a mic drop moment, isn't it? It's wrong what they're doing and I'm gonna fix it. You're better. Drop the mic. Take a seat, gentlemen and ladies in the back. What I want you to picture is Jesus dealt with deep distress and frustration and always sought to do what was right even in the midst of it. I mean, he could have gone to town on them and he just let the fruit of life be what mattered. And by the way, do you know what they did out of this? They got together and made a plot to kill him. It should say something to us when we do the right things. It doesn't always get the results we think it will. Let me take you to another one. This next one, Jesus is with his... uh, His disciples, he sends them out in a group of 72, two by two to go to different cities. And he says, I'm giving you the power of God. I'm giving you my spirit. And you go, you heal diseases, you go do all sorts of things. And they come back and they're reporting to him all that they've done. And he literally says, I saw Satan fall from heaven. It's awesome what just happened. But then he cautions them, listen, as much as that happened, make sure you're fixed on who I am, not just on what you got to do. And then this is what it says of what he just saw. At that time, Jesus was full of joy through the Holy Spirit. Did he seem like he was stoic here? No, no, no. And I guarantee you, I know he didn't live at that time, but he had Journey on his playlist and he was living in the 80s, he'd have cranked that baby. I mean, it was just one of those moments he was pumped about. He had the joy of the Spirit and he says this, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you've hidden these things from the wise and the learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. Now, do you know who he's speaking about with little children? 
He's not talking about kids, by the way. He's talking about his disciples. Does that sound very elevating to you about them, just as a side note? I mean, I'm looking at it thinking, are they short? Is that why you call them little children? What he's really saying, he's not, he's not trying to diss them either, is, God, I love this. Because you take everything that exalts itself, people who think the most of themselves because of pre, pre, their pedigree, their power, their prestige, their prominence, and you say, that ain't it. I will take people that have no notoriety, and that's who I'm going to use to change the world because I'm going to prove it's God, not them, and they get to be part of it. And that brought him joy. I love that. And it's not about if you have, if you have those things that you're, you, you should feel badly. It's about letting go of them and saying they don't do anything. It's the posture of humility, not the pedigree of it. But I love this picture. Different emotions that Jesus deals with, and I think we tend to dismiss them. I wanted you to see it kind of in a bandwidth view. And now I want to take you into a key story that I think we can mine into a little more to see what Jesus might want to teach us about engaging our own emotions. So we're going to the place where Jesus is in Gethsemane. This is the night before. This is the night he's going to be betrayed, actually, in a few minutes. He's already been with the disciples for Passover. And it says this in Matthew's account of it. We're going to look at a little bit of Matthew and Luke. It says, he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him and began to be sorrowful and troubled. Now, I do want you to picture part of this because he's got 12 with him and even some others, and he takes just three to be with him. So we'll come back to it, but I want you to picture when Jesus is going to deal with these deep emotions, that's a side thing that we're going we're to talk about, but I want to get to the central part of this. He says, he's sorrowful and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Now, if you're anything like me and you read this, I read it and I tend to gloss over it. Yeah, Jesus had a hard day. He's sorrowful. Do, do you hear the depth of sorrow he's living with in emotion? He is sorrowful and troubled to the point of death. In other words, it's ripping his heart and his life out. He is so, so broken and struggling over this. He's just a mess emotionally. That's what we're getting a window into. And Jesus being fully God and fully man, in his humanity, he's a mess from this. And then he says to these three, stay here and keep watch with me. Be with me in this. Part of the picture of what we're to do with our emotions. Going a little farther, he fell to his face to the ground and he prayed, Father, if it's possible in any way, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. That's where I want us to stop for a minute. What Jesus does is he takes all of his emotions, all of his heartache and desire not to go through with what he's about to have to go through. He's down on his knees, really down on his face. And he just takes all of his emotions and he goes, Father, here they are. I gotta give all these to you. I don't even know what to do with them. I just have to surrender them and go, what do you want, you do. In other words, Jesus gives access to the Father, the good, the bad, and the ugly, all of it. And he's, we have a vulnerable moment. We, we never think about this, but Jesus is actually saying, I really wish I didn't have to do this. Do you, do you know the Son of God actually said, I really wish I didn't have to die for all these people? But he still gives it to God. The good, the bad, and the ugly, he gives to God. That is a picture for us. God wants us to bring our emotions to him. 
and cry out for him in them. And I don't know about you, but I don't know how to fix my emotions. I just know to bring them to him. And part of our maturity is how he meets us in bringing them. There's something profound that Jesus shows us in how it relates to the Father. And this is the crazy part. So in Matthew, it tells us he asks a question. In Luke, it gives us this other window. It actually says in Luke that after this happens, the angel of heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. Now, does that seem unfair to you? Because it feels unfair to me. I, I, I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but I do not, at least in my lifetime, recognize an angelic visitation when I brought my emotions. And so we can kind of read this and think, well, see, Jesus had a little extra help. I want you to see what happens even after he's ministered to, though. And being in anguish, in other words, this didn't end it. He prayed more earnestly, and now his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Did it seem that this made it subside? No. It got harder, which, by the way, is another picture for me because it's not like we just bring our emotions to God and leave them there. We bring them there and we keep bringing them there, and we keep bringing them there, and we keep asking for him to meet us as we bring him there. I want you to get a picture for the battle of this and the ongoing surrender of this. And at least in my Christian journey, giving God my emotions has not been a momentary fix. It's a lifelong battle to give and say, help, I just can't do this. And what great encouragement that we get a picture into Jesus. He's sweating drops of blood. That has never happened to anyone else I know. I mean, the pain of that, I can't even imagine what it's beginning for him. It takes us from here back to his close friends. When he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep. In other words, he went back to see their connection to it and they weren't even able to be there. And then it gives us this unique picture. They were exhausted from sorrow. Now, I believe that means they were exhausted from their own pain because they were thinking about their own pain of losing him. They weren't exhausted from knowing his sorrow. And what I don't want you to miss is Jesus invited others in to be close to him in his pain and his emotions. And even though they failed, it's not a license for us to go see, you have to do it alone. It's a picture that the role of the church filled with the spirit is actually to be with each other in the pain. In other words, you and I should have trusted people around us we can share our lives with. Jesus went alone to bring the path for that and gives us a picture of in his darkest moment, he longed for that. In his crying out to redeem us, he didn't get it. I think it's a powerful thing that God's asking us. It's bring your emotions, the good, the bad, and the ugly to God. You know, I had, I had an experience in my young adult life that has really stayed with me and marked me related to this. I was in my first uh, pastoral job and I was at a worship conference. I was at a vineyard conference. I loved their movement, loved their worship stuff. And I'm sitting out, you know, they teach and then we worship, they teach and we worship and it's all about worship. So you'd think it would be a joy for me. And all I kept doing was watching these different worship leaders and sizing myself up against them. I found myself jealous, insecure, at times very judgmental. I was a mess watching this thing that should be wonderful. So suddenly I was convicted like, oh no, I'm about to worship God. I can't worship God like this, it's not right. God doesn't want me to worship like this. And I thought for a minute I needed to step back, fix the emotions, and then I'd step back in and worship. Now I had this experience, I can't describe it other than mystical, where a thought came to me, I believe it was God's whisper. 
And this was the thought. Pete, just come as you are. Bring your jealousy. Bring your insecurity. Bring your competitiveness. And worship me with all that you are, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Just bring it all. It was transformational. Because God wasn't saying, fix yourself and then come to me. He was saying, come to me in your brokenness. Lay it before me. And let me just meet you in it. Because I can't change all that stuff. But when I bring it to him and go, God, this is my part. I surrender to your will. I can't fix this. I can't feel differently. I can't change it. But man, I can worship you in it. Will you meet me in it? That's the picture I think God has for us. It's not in a service. I don't mean you come to church and that's where you do it. Though that can be a part of it. It's just coming before him. It's basically saying, I'm gonna bring you my emotions, the good, the bad, and the ugly. God, I bring it all to you. And I surrender to you in this thing. That's what I know to do with my emotions. The only way you'll grow me is for me to be honest in my brokenness and my mess and ask you to actually build me up and grow me as I surrender whatever comes from it. And then I don't wanna miss the other message, which is that you need to share all of who you are with some trusted friends. I'm not saying it has to be a broad circle. I'm not asking you to overshare. But I'm telling you, God also made us for community. And one of the places we grow emotionally is as we share life together. That's why we build groups here. That's why we ask you in your own close relationships to grow together in Christ, because we're meant to do this in community, not alone. And what a beautiful example. Even when it didn't work, Jesus still did it. Because he said, I made you for this. Now I'm gonna pray for us But before I do, I want to remind you, we're going to celebrate communion after this. And I love communion as a picture of what we're teaching because we come to God to receive who he is in communion. And we come, the good, the bad, and the ugly. You will not fix your emotional struggles as you come to the altar. It's not like, or come to these places where we do communion. It's not like it suddenly just instantaneously fixes. But man, God meets you in it and he moves in power in it. So I want to pray for us with this in mind, and then we'll enter into this sacred response, a sacred activity. Let me pray. Lord, I ask as we celebrate communion together in a minute, God, that you will meet us in our emotional immaturity, in our emotional brokenness, and in the places you're already working. God, I pray as we come to receive that every time and every part we do, we'd give to you who we are, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And God, that we will have a surrendered life that says, I'm yours. And you would give your presence to do what you want to from it. Wherever we are in faith, from searching to following, would you meet us in that today in your name? Amen.